Welcome to the Medici Podcast, Episode 35, Trial by Ordeal. Let me take a moment to thank my newest patron, Sonia C. Or if you want another way to support the podcast, give us a review or recommend the podcast to a friend who is into history. Just before his excommunication by Pope Alexander, Savonarola was at the top of the mountain. True, he had become not just an embarrassment, but a liability because of his hostile relationship with the Pope. But he still had formidable political influence and was, in many ways, untouchable. No matter how many of his enemies, the Arabiati, got elected, none dared act against him out of fear that arresting him would cause a civil war or the collapse of the Republic. But the mountain Savonarola stood on was turning into mud. Florence was still in an economic decline that would, in some ways, prove to be permanent. A plague was raging across Tuscany, and food prices were still high and would get even worse after another harsh winter in 1497-1498. Now, Alexander's excommunication didn't knock Savonarola off the mountain, but to take the metaphor one step further... It was like turning a firefighter's hose on an already increasingly slippery and muddy hill. He wrote two letters in response to his excommunication, the first written in Italian and not Latin, which was still the international language of scholarship in the church. This letter was meant to be addressed to all Christians, while the second letter in Latin was addressed to theologians and other academics. Savonarola still did not dare attack the Pope directly. Instead, he stressed he was only suspected of heresy, and argued that he was not necessarily barred from preaching. Never mind that Pope Alexander did explicitly tell him he was forbidden from getting behind the pulpit. In his sermons after the excommunication, Savonarola did dare to be a bit more explicit in his criticisms of the Pope. Savonarola imagined the reaction in Rome to his excommunication. Once my excommunication was announced, they once more abandoned themselves to excessive eating and drinking, to greed of all kinds, to consorting with concubines, to the sale of benefices, and to all manner of lies and wickedness. As much as Savonarola tried to turn the public relations tide against Pope Alexander, the excommunication gave both the government and the public permission to loosen the grip Savonarola had over the city. Prostitutes who had been banned from the streets and restricted to brothels returned to the old red-light neighborhoods. 
horse races were once again being announced and people felt safe making bets in broad daylight again. And people reacted to the news of the excommunication with public dancing and singing anti-Savonarola songs. In February of 1498, Savonarola tried to host another bonfire of the vanities. While it did take place, this time people gave up far fewer vanities for the fire. Worse, Savonarola's boys were barred from entering some neighborhoods, and in some cases were greeted with stones thrown from windows. If Savonarola's supporters didn't still have a stronghold on the government, it's likely Savonarola might have been arrested or forced to go to Rome then and there. But even political support couldn't stop the opposition to Savonarola from escalating. De Adebiati became more outspoken and openly defined themselves as fighting for the natural world, as opposed to Savonarola's supernatural world of prophecy. There was even an anti-Savonarola street gang, the Componacci, a term that Paul Strafford translates as bully boys. They were likely the ones who originally vandalized the cathedral and set up a trap on the pulpit for Savonarola. Now they plotted to blow up Savonarola by putting gunpowder under the pulpit, but called off the plan when they realized that they might kill some of their relatives and loved ones who might sit in the front pews. Laura Martinez thinks this might have been the first plan to carry out an assassination using explosives in European history. Matters only worsened when Alexander VI threatened to put Florence under an interdict, which would forbid most religious sacraments to Florentine citizens, unless Savonarola was sent to Rome immediately. But just as Savonarola's enemies were getting bolder, so was he. Savonarola wrote a series of letters addressed to the Holy Roman Emperor and the monarchs of Castile, Aragon, Hungary, France, and England, making a case for holding a general council of the church and deposing the pope. Part of the letters were addressed personally to each monarch, but the rest of the letters shared the same text, which declared that not only did the Pope have a notorious personal life, but he was also a secret atheist. The church is filled with abominations from the crown of her head to the soles of her feet, yet not only do you neglect to cure her of her ailments, but instead you pay homage to the source of evils which pollute her. Wherefore, the Lord is greatly angered, and has for long left the church without a shepherd. I now hereby testify in the word of the Lord that Alexander is no pope, nor can he be regarded as one. I declare that he is not a Christian, and does not believe in the existence of God, and thus far exceeds the limits of infidelity. We don't know exactly what happened to all the letters, or even if any of them arrived at their intended destination. Apparently most, if not all of them, were intercepted by agents of Alexander VI. At the very least, the letter meant for King Charles VIII of France ended up right in the hands of the Pope himself. It's a fun exercise to imagine Alexander's reaction. Even then, though, Alexander only threatened to call an interdict of Florence, which would have forbidden most sacraments, 
and religious rights to the citizens of Florence. Maybe Alexander knew that interdicts had a habit of backfiring, which you might remember is exactly what happened the last time a pope put Florence under an interdict. Certainly, Alexander was clever enough to realize that something was likely to give on its own. And what changed the situation ended up being nothing the Pope did, but the rash actions of one of Savonarola's own followers. A Franciscan preacher named Francesco da Puglia challenged in a sermon anyone who believed in Savonarola's gift of prophecy to prove their case through a medieval trial by ordeal. Centuries ago, trials by ordeal were a more or less accepted way for someone to prove that their case was backed by no one less than God. Someone accused of a crime like murder or lying under oath could prove their innocence through fighting a duel or by walking over heated plowshares or putting their hand in boiling water. Over time, though, such trials became less common and their use heavily regulated and circumscribed by the law. The official stance of the church had also long turned against such trials, seeing them as going against biblical verses such as Deuteronomy 6.16. You shall not put your Lord God to the test. Also, it was felt among the educated, especially after the rise of humanism, that such rituals were just superstition. In fact, Puglia may have just been making a rhetorical point in presenting a barbed critique of the whalers, specifically that their views were so backward that they probably would sign up for a trial by ordeal. In fact, no such trial had taken place in Florence since the 11th century when a man named Giovanni Gualberto walked through flames to prove his accusation that the local bishop was a heretic. But however Puglia meant it, that's actually exactly what happened. Priests, nuns, monks, laymen, and even children in Savonarola's camp volunteered to be put to the test. Chief among them was a fellow friar, prominent whaler, and one of Savonarola's lieutenants, Domenico de Pescia. Now, Savonarola's own writing suggests that he, too, was skeptical of the whole trial-by-ordeal thing. As much as he had renounced the humanist learning he received as a university student, he was still in his own way a child of the Renaissance. And he was not warm to the idea of such trials actually reflecting the will of God. As a result, he sternly reprimanded Pescia and put a halt to any talk of any trial by ordeal to prove or disprove his prophecies. Even so, when in the sermon Savonarola said, I entreat each of you to pray earnestly to God that if my doctrine does not come from him, he will send down a fire upon me, which shall consume my soul in hell. Francesco interpreted it as Savonarola picking up the gauntlet. Even if he originally meant the trial by ordeal, as some kind of satirical allegory. In his next sermon, Francesco vowed he would walk through fire himself if it meant freeing the city of Savonarola. With this new declaration, Pescia stepped up again and vowed that he would indeed walk through flames to prove Savonarola was the prophet he said he was. All of Florence buzzed with talk of this medieval ritual being revived. As much as he loathed Savonarola, 
Pope Alexander was actually scandalized and considered not allowing the trial. But the Adabiati embraced the idea, especially since they reasonably assumed it would end in a bloody humiliation for Savonarola and his entire movement. Oddly enough, no one in Savonarola's camp suggested that the friar himself should offer himself to the flames. A modern biographer of Savonarola, Donald Weinstein, mused, Why in this case Friar Domenico should have to risk the fire himself, he did not explain, but this was a time for miracles, not logic. Still, the Signora, which was then dominated by the Arabiati, debated over whether or not to allow the trial to take place. One prior, Filippo Guini, argued the whole controversy was making Florence a laughing stock in the eyes of Europe. To me, this idea of passing through fire seems all very odd, and I, for one, am against it. Why don't we instead use a trial by water? This would be much less dangerous. If Friar Girolamo could pass through water without getting wet, then I would certainly join in asking for his pardon. Nonetheless, the Signora voted to allow Domenico de Pescia to undergo the trial on April 6, although because of rumors that Pope Alexander would forbid the event, it was delayed by one day. In front of the Palazzo della Signora, a platform about 4 feet high and 16 feet wide was built over packed earth and in the center of the plaza. Unbaked bricks were laid out over the platform to keep it from catching fire, over this were heaped thick pieces of wood, along with branches and twigs. The plan was that the platform would be set ablaze and Pescia would walk across it. A huge crowd gathered to watch the proceedings, even though the Signora banned women and children from being present. But while the crowd impatiently waited for the festivities to begin, both Savonarola's supporters and his enemies squabbled over the proper procedures. For example, when Pescia showed up in a red cloak in a particularly shameless gesture of bravado, the objection was raised that the cloak might have been enchanted through witchcraft. Then, when Pescia agreed to take off the cloak, the same objection was made to his regular clothes. In the end, Pescia had to consent to being stripped naked before the mob that had come to see him burn. Meanwhile, Savonarola's supporters debated endlessly whether or not Pescia should bring into the fire the host, the sacramental bread believed to be changed into the body of Jesus Christ. But in the end, the audience's bloodlust would be denied. A severe thunderstorm, complete with hail, suddenly hit Florence and dissipated just as quickly. Savonarola had come around to the idea of the trial by fire, but apparently now that the day had arrived, he was having his doubts. So he seized on the meteorological opportunity to declare that the unexpected thunderstorm was a sign of his vindication from God. The crowd, disappointed and angry and hungry, were forcibly dispersed. Savonarola's opponents, though, did not raise a fuss at this. They guessed that the stunt would do almost as much damage to Savonarola's reputation in Florence as if Pescia had burned to death in the piazza and that even some of his most fervent followers would be disillusioned. And they were right. Savonarola may have thought he just got out of a tricky situation, 
but instead his fate was as good as sealed. I should also mention that the very day of the aborted trial by ordeal, Savonarola's one-time messiah, and the man who inadvertently made his prominence possible, King Charles VIII of France, struck his head against the stone lintel of a door while on his way to watch a tennis match. Although he was fine throughout the course of the match, apparently the wound did some real damage, and he fell into a coma he would never awaken from. Given how slowly news traveled then, Savonarola probably never found out. But it is one of the great odd coincidences of history. The next day, the holy day of Palm Sunday, a supporter of Savonarola tried to give a sermon in the Cathedral of Florence, but the Compagnacci brazenly disrupted it, chanting, Get out of here, you sniveling psalm singers. At the monastery of San Marco, where the Signora had still been allowing Savonarola to preach, an angry mob gathered and was demanding that Savonarola leave Florence for good. To his credit, Savonarola refused to give his followers the order to gather weapons. Indeed, he tried to leave the safety of San Marco and surrender to the crowd, but the friars there restrained him. Some at San Marco even ignored the pleas for nonviolence and took to the roof, where they threw bricks and towels down at the crowd. However, they were seriously outgunned, especially when the Signora gave the anti-Savonarola revolution their blessing by ordering the arrest of Savonarola and two of his top lieutenants, Friar Silvestro Marufi, and Pascia himself. Riots broke out in other parts of Florence, with prominent whalers getting attacked, even killed, and their homes looted. Savonarola's bulldog in the Great Council, Francesco Valori, had been present in San Marco for his sermons of that day. When violence broke out, he fled through a secret exit, hoping to rally support from the whalers and the government. It was too late, though. Stopping at his house, he found to his horror that it was being looted and burned down. His wife had been killed, and his nephews who tried to stop the looters were seriously injured. Guards found him and were about to take him to the Palazzo of the Signora, but then the rioters rushed the guards and struck him in the head from behind, killing him. Vincenzo Ridolfi, who was the nephew of one of the pro-Medici conspirators executed the year before, cut off his head with a pruning knife. The chronicler Landucci, who was a whaler, wrote this about the riots. It was as if hell had opened beneath our feet. Everyone kept saying, wretch and traitor. No one dared to say a word in support of Savonarola, or they would have been killed. And everyone jeered at the citizens, calling them whalers and hypocrites. Savonarola eventually managed to convince his followers to let him surrender himself. Unlike with poor Francesco Valori, the guards did manage to protect him from the mob's wrath and take the disgraced prophet to the Palazzo of the Signora. There, he was met by representatives of Pope Alexander. Technically, the church tortured nobody, but they certainly could order judicial torture through magistrates of the state. So, Savonarola was subjected to the strapado, a torture device where the victim's hands were tied behind their back, while they were suspended midair from a rope. 
Under this horrific torture, which sometimes left victims with dislocated shoulders, Savonarola confessed that he had lied about his prophecies coming from God in order to achieve fame and glory. Later, he recanted this confession, but under the threat of more torture, he confessed again. He, Marufi, and Pashia were charged with treason against the state, heresy, and encouraging a schism in the church. The first two charges were trumped up, and modern historians agree that the trial and confession papers were doctored to support the charges. A case could be made that Savonarola's insistence on the validity of his prophecies and the willful ignorance of his enemies was heretical. But Savonarola would not be the first or the last celebrity cleric to claim to be receiving messages directly from God and many of them were never even seriously accused of heresy. The last charge of trying to bring about a schism, though, was very much accurate. There's almost certainly no way Savonarola could have gotten his wish of at least one of the monarchs of Europe deposing Alexander VI without a new church schism and even war. By this point, banishment or being judged by the Pope himself were off the table. Savonarola and his lieutenants had to die, and at the hands of the Republic, so that the whalers could be neutralized, and that no one could say Florence let the Pope kill one of its own citizens. On the morning of May 23rd, they were taken to the plaza in front of the Piazza of the Signora, where a group of church representatives pardoned them for their sins, and then formally handed them over to the Florentine magistrates to be killed. The three were stripped of their religious vestments, left only in common white clothes they were hanged, and then a fire was set under their bodies. Guicciardini in his chronicle remarks, Savonarola died with unyielding fortitude without uttering a word, either claiming his innocence or confessing his guilt. None of us altered anyone's opinion, either for or against him, or the strength of their feelings on this matter. Many viewed him as a charlatan, while on the other hand many were of the opinion that his public confession was simply a forgery. Honestly, I debated over whether or not I should do this episode at all, since I couldn't find a natural way to fit the Medici into this part of the narrative. But I decided that Savonarola is a vital part of the Medici's story, even though it seems at a glance he actually had little to do with them. Savonarola's religious legacy became inseparable from the Republican history of Florence, so much so that, spoiler warning, the Medici would again be driven out of Florence, and the Republicans would turn to the memory of Savonarola. His writings would also have an influence over both Protestant and Catholic reformers in the coming age of the Reformation combining the intellectual rigor of humanism with a view of religion as a tool to change society for the better that was arguably more modern than medieval. But I think it's just as important to consider how Savonarola failed, and what that says about the direction of societies in Europe following the Renaissance. Like two political leaders you can see as his spiritual successors, Jean Calvin over the Swiss city-state of Geneva, and Oliver Cromwell as the leader of the English Commonwealth. They tried to create governments that aggressively enforced Christian morals. 
any successes all three enjoyed was always tempered by the fact they were resented and resisted by the majority of their populations. In some, Savonarola showed that there was a future in the state, taking over functions that in the Middle Ages generally belonged to the church and its courts, and trying to mold their societies to fit moral and religious ideals. However, through his failure, Savonarola also showed that the future belonged even more to humanists like the Medici, and their vision of a progressive society where the church has to give way to open discussion of non-Christian ideas and philosophies. Next time, we won't be rejoining Piero de' Medici just yet, since through all this he's still just stewing in Venice. Instead, we'll join the Papalano brothers, the sons of Pier Francesco de' Medici, one of whom is about to enter a love affair with one of the most formidable women of Renaissance Italy, and by doing so, change the future of the family.